Listener production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Wednesday, December 15. Tom Tilly with you, joined by Katrina Blouse. And in today's briefing, we're going to look into Omicron in the UK. No one should be in any doubt. There is a tidal wave of Omicron coming. That was the British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, on Monday sounding the alarm. So for over a year, Katrina... I think here in Australia, a lot of us have watched the UK to see how they've dealt with COVID to try and get a sense of how things might play out here. Yeah, so with UK case numbers nearing the peak of the last wave, we've been wondering how dire is it? Or is this what living with COVID has always meant? Yeah, is it just a tougher psychological adjustment than we thought or are things really going pear-shaped in the UK? We'll bring you an interview from South London in this episode's briefing, but first here are today's headlines. Well, Tasmania is opening up to the rest of the country today. I think right now, when we're at a point where we are one of the highest uh, vaccinated um, places in the world, that the time is right to reopen. That's the Tassie Premier, Peter Gutwin, there. So the border's been closed to some of the high-risk states, um, Victoria in particular, since May. Those coming in now from New South Wales and Victoria will have to get a COVID test 72 hours before they travel. Now to New South Wales. And my goodness, this is getting so testing right before Christmas. Doesn't COVID just have a way of messing with us right before any big holiday moment? So right at the same time, the state hit 804 daily cases yesterday, which is the biggest in over two months and a huge jump on the 536 from Monday. New South Wales will be extending its freedom to the unvaccinated from today and density limits and most QR codes and mask rules are being removed. Yeah, so it's a bit of a knife-edge situation here. They announced these changes of bringing the unvaccinated back into the fold last month, but here we are with a big surge in case numbers. One of the biggest super spreader events that's caused this surge is a nightclub in the Hunter Argyle House. Sounds like people had a bit of fun there last week. Um, Over 150 cases so far. It makes it one of the biggest super spreading events in the whole pandemic so far. Yeah, since uh, that Ruby Princess incident. Uh, New South Wales is also ending hotel quarantine for returning citizens from the eight African countries where it was believed Omicron first kicked off. Now, I guess that it's everywhere. That ban just didn't make any more sense, Tom. Yeah, well, the expectation is those cases in that nightclub in the Hunter Uh, Omicron. So last Christmas, big part of Sydney, the Northern Beaches got shut down right before Christmas. Um, Mm. Blues Fest got canned just at Easter a couple of days before. My ski season was ruined at the end of June when the Delta wave hit. It's just um, really got a way of, I guess, upping the sort of ante on big occasions. And I think it really is killing the vibe on a lot of Christmas parties. A lot of people are saying, well, I don't really want to go to, say, my work Christmas party and be a close Mm. contact and then be locked down for Christmas Day. Well, there's a whole plane load of people that came in when the Queensland borders reopened from Newcastle who will now be doing exactly that, spending Christmas Day in quarantine. It's super sad. Police have called off the renewed search for William Tyrrell. Hundreds of forensic investigators and volunteers have spent a month scouring bushland on the mid-north coast of New South Wales in search for the missing three-year-old's remains. In a statement overnight, New South Wales Police said its homicide squad will continue to investigate the disappearance, but that intensive physical search will wind up in coming days. Yeah, so they're investigating the evidence they found from it, including um, loads of soil, but they haven't shared any breakthroughs. I think... 
that renewed intensity on that search had given everyone a lot of hope and it came in the wake of the Cleo Smith discovery in Western Australia. Um, but so far we don't have yeah. any good news on that one, unfortunately. And they said that uh, really the weather conditions were about as bad as they could get. They couldn't actually get any worse and, and perhaps that played a factor there too. And private texts revealed Donald Trump's son urged him to intervene in the January 6 Capitol Hill riot. A congressional committee is investigating this riot and it's revealed the messages from Don Jr. to his father's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, say the deadly riot had, quote unquote, gotten out of hand and the president should, quote, condemn this shit ASAP. (laughs) Donald Trump Sr. did eventually urge his supporters to go home, but not before they stormed the Capitol building where Congress was meeting to certify Joe Biden's presidential election win and five people died and obviously the president's come under massive fire for not intervening earlier in that riot. Haiti has declared three days of national mourning after more than 50 people were killed in a fuel tanker explosion. This is the latest crisis to hit the Caribbean country. Around 20 homes were damaged, more than 100 people injured when the tanker exploded after it was caught in a traffic accident and yeah, it sort of brings to an end a, a tragic year for Haiti. It's had a devastating earthquake, a presidential assassination and a spike in gang-related kidnappings and now this. And a US hockey team and a bank have apologised after a charity event where teachers competed to get money for classroom supplies. Uh, this one's been condemned as dystopian. Yeah, it seems pretty off. So it was called uh, the Dash for Cash good, clean fun. Um, but it's four teachers at a hockey game have to scoop as many $1 bills into their clothing as they could in five minutes. <laughs> so pretty demeaning yeah. um, because teachers yeah. are expected to spend their own money on teaching tools in the classroom in the US. I didn't even know that. And that makes this very sad. Uh, videos of the event were shared online. They've since been called humiliating. And they've even been compared to the show Squid Game. <laughs> Maybe a little bit of a stretch there. The organisers have apologised for the event. Uh, good to know, though, that those teachers did end up being given money. They were all given the same amount of money so they can all get those classroom supplies. All right, in a moment, Omicron in the UK. Imagine what it's like to hear about friends who've already had COVID getting it again. And cases are so common that schools no longer send out alerts or shut classes down. Parents only find out because they mention it to each other in passing. Yeah, from an Aussie perspective, that sounds strange and alarming. But in London, where cases are spiking again, that's the new normal. Yeah, so Omicron is on its way to becoming the dominant variant. Daily case numbers are over 50,000 cases a day. That's that's for COVID in general. And they're about to eclipse last winter's Delta peak. But hospitalisations and deaths are much lower. So is this the reality of what living with COVID is? Or is that plan in the UK falling slowly apart? Hans van Leeuwen is an Aussie journo who lives in a suburb smack in the middle of South London. He's the European Coro for the Australian Financial Review. Hans, thanks for joining us. How is this latest wave playing out around you and your family? 
Yeah, well, do you know, I was actually just walking out this afternoon um, and I bumped into a mum who, there are lots of primary schools in my area, maybe sort of four quite close together. Uh, and I bumped into a mum from one of the other schools and she was with her kids and it was 2.30 in the afternoon. And I said, what are you doing? And she said, well, our school had to shut. We don't have enough teachers to get to the end of term because coronavirus is ripping through. And similarly, in my own kids' school, half the class is away with COVID. They're struggling to fill all the teaching slots. And, you know, we've been through a lot of waves of this over the last year and a half or whatever whatever it's been now. But I feel like this one, it's really been much more kind of in your face in this part of London, certainly, than the other ones have. And it's become almost normal to on a daily basis here about people with COVID. It's really just all around right now. What's different about it? Is that just localised factors where you are? Or does that speak to the nature of this wave? There are two things, probably. One is that Relatively speaking, London is under-vaccinated. So um, even in my area, probably only, uh, I think I have looked at the stat, but it's about 68, 69% of people are double-jabbed. One reason for that is there's quite a lot of ethnic minorities in my part of London and they tend to be under-vaccinated relative to the rest of the population. Another very under-vaccinated group is, of course, children. And I live in an area that, although it's gentrifying very fast, is an area where people in their 30s and 40s move and have kids and there are a lot of primary schools and a lot of primary school-aged children. Um, so generally speaking, London is under-vaccinated and young and there are susceptible populations. And as coronavirus mops up susceptible populations, um, I happen to be in a place that has both the kind of main categories of susceptibility. So it is a bit sort of puzzling to find it suddenly all around you when until recent days you haven't seen that movement in the statistics to sort of go with it. So it's that dichotomy between the anecdotal and the mm. kind of, you know, official national stats that kind of prompted me to write about this at the weekend. So given you're hearing about all these cases from friends and people that you know, is there concern about that? And, and how how ill are these people getting? Mostly not very. So I'm in my 40s and some people I know in my neighbourhood who are in their 40s say it's a pretty decently bad flu. But for some people, they've just said, oh, it was like the sniffles or I hardly knew I had it. Kids will have a headache, maybe a runny nose, maybe a cough, maybe a couple of other symptoms. But I haven't come across anyone telling me that their kid uh, in my class or in my school community, that their kid has had anything worse than they might normally get at this time of year. And that does tally with the national statistics, which are that the number of hospitalizations isn't getting higher. Mm. There's a lot of stories in the paper at the moment saying the hospital's under a lot of pressure, but the sheer number is not changing. It's high, but it's been flatlining for about three or four weeks, even as cases are starting to mount and mount. So it does seem like the vaccination program is doing what we hoped it would do. Mm. And it's turning this into a slightly less concerning illness to come down with, although, you know, obviously there are always people who are going to get it worse, um, as there are with flu and other illnesses. So it's starting to feel more like another illness. And that's kind of the way people in my area are treating it. As more and more people we know get this fairly mild illness, the level of fear and concern just isn't mounting up in the way it has on previous occasions during the pandemic. It's such a tricky set of data and anecdotes to really psychologically understand, isn't it? Because it's scary. We're facing a new thing. We've also all got a bit of PTSD from the last year and a half of so many unknowns sort of spiking anxieties. But when you do actually look at the numbers, this is more or less what we were told would happen, that case numbers would mm. rise, but with substantial vaccinations, hospitalizations and deaths would stay relatively flat. And so just a, a sort of a rough look at the numbers there in the UK, you see that as you intimated before, the hospitalizations are about a fifth of what they were in that big winter wave, roughly yeah. deaths around yeah. a tenth of what they were. So 
isn't this what living with COVID looks like? Yeah, I mean, it does. I mean, I guess the one thing that's kind of upset the plan that the UK had to kind of live with COVID in this way is the Omicron virus. So what we're seeing at the moment, we don't know how much of it is Omicron, probably not that much of it yet. I think I've seen some estimates saying it couldn't be more than 20% and it's probably not even that yet and it may get that far and go beyond. But the difficulty that the government has now and the reason why if you're watching the news out of Britain, you're seeing the government look a bit panicky is two things really. One is that there isn't evidence yet and what evidence there is is a bit concerning about AstraZeneca and Omicron. So it looks like if you've had two or three Pfizer doses, you can get not as good protection as you had against Delta and the other earlier strains, but decent, comfortable protection against severe illness from COVID using Pfizer. But the data on AstraZeneca isn't all in yet, but it doesn't look as promising. And the thing is, unlike many other countries like in Europe and I think Australia as well, most of the people in the first two-dose campaign were vaccinated with AstraZeneca because it was the locally made vaccine here. Mm. So everyone's sort of AZ'd, apart from younger people in the first big vaccination campaign that ran throughout the first eight months of this year. So that leaves a sort of sense of possibly here in the UK, we're not as protected as we could be. And so that's why they've gone absolutely bonkers this week with this Mm. kind of like, we're going to jab the entire population with a booster (laughs) before the end of the year, which is pretty ambitious uh, target and one I don't think they're going to get anywhere near meeting. uh, But that's because all the boosters are going to be Pfizer and Moderna. And so the reason why it's so critical here is because if it does turn out that Omicron's a bit more successful against AstraZeneca, then Britain really needs to get its skates on with the booster program. As you pointed out, there's a lot of lockdown fatigue and really it's very unlikely that people will be as compliant as they have been in the past. So the only option you've got is just absolutely boosted the bejesus out of it. So in the face of this new variant, psychologically, how's that affected people you know? You were talking about some friends of yours, a bit of black humour to deal with this, putting a a sign on their door saying, here be the plague. (laughs) Are people just kind of resorting to that sort of gallows humour in an attempt to cope with this or are people just genuinely wanting to move past it? I think it's a bit frustrating at this point. I don't think we sort of sit around joking about it too much because I think the problem is we're coming right up to Christmas now and and there's this kind of fear that a lot of people have actually or anxiety that they're going to get it just before Christmas and, you know, it's going to spoil their Christmas. They won't be able to go and see their elderly relatives, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's a frustration because the government has become much less popular in a very quick space of time over this, but it's not really... I think the frustration isn't really directed at the government. It's almost sort of, what can you do? It's still running around. It's beating the vaccines, at least in terms of how many people are getting infected. So then if you're infected, you have to stay home and you have to be inside for 10 days and it's really boring. And we've all done this so many times now, you know, like, God, do we have to do it again? And then this time of year, you know, when everyone was looking forward to kind of Christmas parties and all the twinkly lights of London in the winter, it's so nice to get out and about in central Mm -hmm. London this time of year. And if it gets worse and we really have to go into a lockdown, I think spirits are going to be pretty low, actually. I'm not even sure the classic English gallows humour is going to apply. I'm sort of amazed to look over at Australia and um, my sense is that in some states, anyway, things are a bit more relaxed than here. And I guess it must just be the the disinfectant of sunshine and the feeling that it's hard to picture a crisis in the middle of summer. I don't know. What do you think they're going to do, the leaders in the UK? Do you think they would go back to a lockdown or is that just not an option anymore? It would be like pulling teeth. I think the idea is let's do the boosters, let's get through Christmas, let's see where we are in the beginning of January. And at that point, if things are still getting worse, I fear some kind of 
more stringent lockdown may await. If things are kind of flatlining, we'll probably just bumble on as we are. If things are getting better, then my God, we might actually be sort of seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. And what about for those of us in Australia who are watching what's happening in in the UK and in London and are thinking, oh gosh, could this be our future? What are the similarities and what are the differences, I guess, for us to take some lessons out of what's happening with you guys? The big, big difference, obviously, is the seasonality question. So if this were to happen in Australia, it, it would probably happen in the winter. And even then, winters are pretty mild. But the other thing is it's sort of harder to slow down the kind of movement of people in the UK. It's a small crowded island in, and flights are still coming in and out and people are moving up, traveling and going to Europe and coming back from Europe. I mean, stuff like that is still going on out of necessity. Britain has much less of an ability to kind of wind back the amount of social interaction and social contact that seems to be possible in Australia. You know, we're all inside now with the window shut, it's cold. But then on the other hand, you sort of look at Europe and you see some of their big waves that they had a month ago are already starting to peter out again. It's amazing how you move through these waves quite quickly. And every conversation you have with people, I don't. again, I don't know if this is true in Australia, but, you know, it's like, oh, who do you know who's got COVID or, you know, where have you got your booster from or all those kind of practical daily life COVID conversations. You just can't help but have them with people all the time. That was Hans van Leeuwen from the Australian Financial Review. It's a really interesting point the UK is at, isn't it, Katrina? Whether it really is mm. just a psychological adjustment of living with COVID, which I think is maybe harder than we expected because it's it's so hard, us, us humans, once we sort of feel fearful, it gets harder to process information properly and really sort of pick apart the anecdotes from the actual data on these situations as they unfold and yeah. also because we're so traumatised by what's happened in the last 18 months. Yeah. I think what Hans said that really resonated with me and I think would make it easier to feel less fearful is if the people that you're talking to are telling you that they're not getting that sick. Because I actually don't know that many people yet living in Queensland. I don't know that many people who've had COVID. Mm. So you sort of think of worst case scenario. But if people are saying it's more like a flu or they're not getting that sick, particularly their kids, that would definitely make me feel calmer. Well, we're still adjusting from the horrifying images we saw at the start of the pandemic from northern Italy, from bodies being piled into trucks in New York to yes. a situation where it's more like the flu. And in, in theory, that's a simple adjustment to make. But in, in practice, processing that is quite hard. Yeah. So this is what uh, officials have always told us to expect, that one day we are just going to have to live with the fact that people are going to get COVID just like they get any seasonal kind of virus. So we'll have to wait and see whether Omicron does change the game in this regard. But if this is the future, then I'm kind of okay with it for now. That's it for today's briefing. Hey, don't forget to sign up for the newsletter. If you want to be on the inside running of what's going on at the briefing, there's a newsletter that's going to kick off next year. So jump into our Instagram bio. There's a link there. Um, Put your name down and your email address for that one. Tomorrow on the briefing, Katrina and I are going to relive the moments that shaped the year that was 2021. Listener.